The Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club episode in which we're taking a look at King John. This was actually the first Shakespeare play I ever performed. I played the young Arthur while I was in drama class as a kid. It's not a particularly exciting part, but at least it didn't put me off Shakespeare for life. As we shall see, Arthur is rather more important for what he symbolises than who he is in his own right. King John certainly isn't Shakespeare's most popular play. It has the singular and peculiar honour of having been the last of all of the plays that I ever saw in performance. If you haven't ever seen it on stage, don't worry, you're certainly not alone. Not many people have anymore. I think it suffers the most because it has aged, and because audiences today have no connection to the history it purports to describe. When I did manage to see it on stage, it was at the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. The production, which was very good, began with a brief and clever introduction to the political landscape. This was very helpful, since there were so many lords and barons and factions and fights to navigate. Essentially, there's John, who's the king, and he's the son of Richard the Lionheart. From the very outset, we get hints that not everyone thinks he should be in charge. There's talk of his borrowed majesty. The king himself doesn't take the bait, but his formidable mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, is having none of it. She's one of the most famous characters of the medieval world, and Shakespeare has her breathe her typical fire in the few scenes that he gives her. The French think that Arthur, John's nephew, should be king. The major drive of the play is the argument over whether John stays in control or Arthur gets to rule. In real life he was an adult when these events occurred, but Shakespeare has him as a young and rather powerless boy. Far more forceful is Arthur's mother Constance, who is a noble and impressive woman who slowly loses her mind over the course of the play. Within all of the available historical information, Shakespeare does something quite extraordinary. We already spoke a little about how Falstaff is Shakespeare's creation within the historical narrative of the early life of King Henry V. He does something similar in King John, a kind of a warm-up for this, inventing an amazing character called the Bastard Falconbridge. Shakespeare spins the character out from the little thread of information that says that Richard the Lionheart had an illegitimate son. This son is the bastard, and Shakespeare makes him the most interesting character in the play. From his first line, he announces himself as John's faithful subject, and somehow he manages to stay his only faithful subject until the end. Falconbridge is interesting because he doesn't seem to be too bothered by the endless machinations and unstable loyalties within the story. Perhaps because he knows he can't take the character very far without rewriting history, Shakespeare uses him as an observer, and we get to see how he sees the world. Commentators consider this character one of the great leaps forward in Shakespeare's life as a writer. Here is a character who really thinks for himself, and shares his thoughts with us. Falconbridge's most impressive speech is a soliloquy right in the middle of the play, in which he discusses the political state of the world. As he sees it, it's all going to hell in a handbasket, with every man and woman out for him or herself, and none of them prepared to lift a finger if it isn't for their own benefit or advancement. Mad world, mad kings, mad composition. John, 
to stop Arthur's title in the whole, hath willingly departed with a part, and France, whose armour conscience buckled on, whom zeal and charity brought to the field, as God's own soldier, rounded in the ear with that same purpose-charger, that sly devil, that broker that still breaks the pate of faith, that daily break-vow, he that wins of all, of kings, of beggars, old men, young men, maids, who having no external thing to lose but the word maid, cheats the poor maid of that, that smooth-faced gentleman, tickling commodity. Commodity, the bias of the world, the world who of itself is pays it well, made to run even upon even ground, till this advantage, this vile drawing bias, this sway of motion, this commodity, makes it take head from all indifferency, from all direction, purpose, course, intent, and this same bias, this commodity, this board, this broker, this all-changing word, clapped on the outward eye of fickle France, hath drawn him from his own determined aid, from a resolved and honourable war, to a most base and vile concluded peace. And why rail I on this commodity? but for because he hath not wooed me yet. Not that I have the power to clutch my hand where his fair angels would salute my palm, but for my hand, as unattempted yet, like a poor beggar, raileth on the rich. Well, whilst I am a beggar, I will rail and say there is no sin but to be rich, and being rich, my virtue then shall be to say there is no vice but beggary. Since kings break faith upon commodity, Gain be my lord, for I will worship thee. Shakespeare hadn't ever used the word commodity before this speech. Perhaps it was a new concept whose existence he solidifies within this play. Falconbridge has his eye on the whole world, and he's watching, and he's smart enough to acknowledge that maybe the reason he can comment so ruefully about commodity is that he hasn't been wooed or seduced by it yet. And who knows, maybe he will. Throughout the play, Falconbridge proves himself the king that maybe England really needs, an heir to Richard the Lionheart, after all. The real history intercedes only at the very end, when King John's son and heir, Prince Henry, appears in the very final scene, and Falconbridge, faithful subject to the end, confirms his loyalty to the new king. Without Falconbridge, the play would be considerably less interesting. There's the sharp-tongued Eleanor, and the troubled Constance and poor Hubert, and the fiery ambassador from the Pope, Cardinal Pandolf, who even excommunicates the king at one point. And, of course, poor Blanche of Castile, John's niece, also connected to pretty much everyone in the play by birth or marriage, and used as a political marriage pawn. We even get a Duke of Austria, a composite of a few historical characters, who shows up primarily, I think, because it's an excuse to show someone wearing the famous lion skin that belonged to Richard the Lion Heart, and, of course, so that Falconbridge can decapitate him and avenge his father. It's a play full of moments, of little nuggets of interesting information, like the lion skin or the fact of seeing Eleanor of Aquitaine on stage. The play also contains one of the most brilliant and dramatic single lines of blank verse in all of Shakespeare, shared between John and his henchman Hubert. They're discussing what to do about young Prince Arthur, 
arguably the rightful heir to John's throne. Hubert has said that, as he's Arthur's keeper, he will keep him so that he will not offend his majesty. They move on to discuss the unspeakable. Death, my lord, a grave, he shall not live, enough. In a play that is composed entirely in blank verse, this is an exceptional moment. There are several ways to play it, either maintaining the rhythm so that the two men share the thought as it develops, or indeed it could be slowed down and the actors could pause so that we get the shock of what they're planning. There had been several other plays about King John in the 16th century, since he had been so adamant in his stance against the Pope. Given the more recent arguments between the Catholic Church and the English Crown, it was understandable that King John might appear as a figure to use on the stage, since, of course, no sensible playwright was going to put Henry VIII on the stage. We can't know for sure if Shakespeare's play appeared in 1591 or as late as 1596, but there's a very good reason to assume the latter. As we recently discussed, Shakespeare's son Hamnet died in 1596, and it is as tempting as it is convincing to assume some personal feelings informed the lines that he wrote for Constance, Arthur's mother. Admittedly, her son isn't actually dead by the time she says these lines, but to her, he might as well be. Grief fills the room up of my absent child, lies in his bed, walks up and down with me, puts on his pretty looks, repeats his words, remembers me of all his gracious parts, stuffs out his vacant garments with his form. Then have I reason to be fond of grief? Fare you well. Had you such a loss as I, I could give better comfort than you do. Even if Shakespeare wasn't writing that personally here, and of course we'll never really know if he was, there's something far more interesting going on in the play, even than this. As ever, this being a history play written during the time of Elizabeth, what's really important is the issue of succession. By the time the play was written, Elizabeth had been on the throne for nearly 40 years, and any discussion of her potential successor was a crime. If we look at King John through the lens of Elizabethan politics, it becomes a much more provocative play. This is a play about a monarch whose father was a major English hero. It's a play about a monarch whose right to the throne is questionable because there's another possible heir. That heir has been raised in France and has a whole faction fighting to put them on the throne. The titular monarch is a little older and not the most effective and seems to be very easily swayed by favourites. All of this could be very easily said of Elizabeth as it is of King John. The play even includes the word Armada, a word that had only come into English consciousness thanks to the failed Spanish attacks that had so fortuitously cemented Elizabeth's authority. The most dangerous element of the story is, however, the treatment of young Arthur. It's quite exciting to imagine that audience members would be able to draw the parallels between John and Elizabeth and, by extension, between Arthur and Mary, Queen of Scots. The play appeared less than a decade after Mary was executed. 
Elizabeth was very uncomfortable with having chosen to have her own cousin killed, and there are a great many dramatisations of her back-and-forth letters and worries and changes of opinion. Is it possible that Shakespeare dramatises this in King John? Again, we have the monarch tormented by the worry that his family member will get his crown with the aid of opposing forces. Again, there's the command being sent and then cancelled. In the play, Arthur tries to escape and dies in the attempt, so it isn't really John's fault. And indeed, this is yet another opportunity for Falconbridge to show what a good leader he is when he sorts out the squabbling over the poor boy's corpse. By the end of the play, the old monarch does indeed die, and his heir is left to set a form upon that indigest which he hath left so shapeless and so rude. Elizabeth had overseen England's transformation into the world's first superpower, and while her rule was rocky in parts, the country was doing quite well by the end of her reign. But she didn't have an heir, and that was still a crisis. Even if Shakespeare was playing with fire, dramatising the schism with Rome, the arranged death of the rightful heir to the throne, and the general selfishness and instability of English politics, he couldn't put that directly on the stage. What he did do was present a very edited version of the life and death of King John, where the timeline is particularly creative and things happen over the course of minutes that in fact took years, if not decades. There are a great many other important things that happened during the reign of King John. As I mentioned in the preamble to this episode last week, Robin Hood was a major folk character that was popular at the time, and indeed in Shakespeare's time, He doesn't get a look in, nor indeed does the matter of the Magna Carta that happened as well, a huge deal, during John's reign. So if these other big events are being expressly ignored, we do have to then look at what is in the play and wonder what Shakespeare wants us to think about. Whatever that may have been, Shakespeare did also have to end the play eventually, and he gives the final words to Falconbridge. O let us pay the time but needful woe, since it hath been beforehand with our griefs. This England never did, nor never shall, lie at the proud foot of a conqueror, but when it first did help to wound itself. Now these her princes are come home again, come the three corners of the world in arms, and we shall shock them. Nought shall make us rue, if England to itself do rest but true. Lest there be any doubt, Shakespeare certainly knows how to work a crowd. Even if there was a murmur of dissent as the play went along, it ends with the crowning of Henry III, solidifying the line of the Plantagenets. One starts to wonder if perhaps there will be a slew of new productions of this play, celebrating a new golden age for England. Who knows? The Plantagenets will rule until the Battle of Bosworth Field, at which point the Tudors will take over and we've five more history plays to get through before that. Before we tackle any more history, however, we'll check in on the adventures of Sir John Falstaff. He was so popular a character that no less a fan than the Queen herself clamoured for more of him, and so Shakespeare wrote The Merry Wives of Windsor, which we'll read next week. I hope you have a lovely week ahead, and I'll speak to you next time.